Last week, I talked about the importance of your flesh. So we already know that we need the flesh. Today, I'm going to talk about the other part of your life. Okay, not the flesh part, but the inward part. So let's look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. There is no life unless there's death. Somebody has to die for someone else to live. So death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe and therefore I have spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. There's life and there's death and they are compatible because both will be raised and become joined together when the Lord Jesus Christ raises up. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant of grace, the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound, meaning superabound, to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but through, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There are seven stages in a believer's life. Each of these stages have a degree of difficulty. When the Apostle Paul talks about death and life, he assumes that the listener understands that there exists both living and dying within the same life at the same time. This is a hard concept to understand because we're not used to thinking about death. We're used to think about how do we continue to live and thrive and have everything we want and never have to make any sacrifice for anything. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that this is not right. For me to live, someone else have to give up something. For me to have something, someone else have to die a little bit of themselves. There exists both living and dying in the same person. And I want to draw out those two things. And here's the language that he used. Outward man and inward man. The outward man, I would say, is the flesh. What you can see on the outside, the thing that you take pictures and post on social media, that's the outward man. That's the outward person. That has to die. That will die. The sooner it dies in our mind, the better your spiritual life or the inward man would be. There is this dichotomy, two parts of your life, the outward one and the inward one. So the outward one, God is concerned and he cares about how you live. We talked about that last week. He concerned about your physical being, but it will die. The purpose for it is to die. The inward man, the purpose for it is to grow and live and be glorified. So now I want you to put that into your thought and start thinking about your life having these two parts, the outward part and the inward part. If this is the first time you are exposed to this, then we are at stage number one. Because your inward part, your spiritual person is not there. All you are right now is the outward part, the physical part that will die. So the two is in opposition with each other. 
Your flesh, the outward part, fights with your inward part. Guess who is winning right now? If you are at stage one, who is more powerful? We want the spiritual man to be more powerful, don't we? So as you sit there and you're fighting through not falling asleep, you are reminded that the outward man is very powerful. It controls every aspect of your life, and if you only focus on your life, I was sitting next to a person. His right hand moves the phone onto his lap. With a flick of a couple of fingers, the game is back on. He moves the next couple of steps. He turns it off and put it down to the side. Physical body is there, but his mind is in the game. And so he flips out and he does exactly he, he repeats this three times. And every time, it is compulsive and it is precise. Every time he pulls out, he turns it on. He moves a couple of pieces and then he turns it off. He puts it down. He does it three times. And then I have to hold his hand and say, "It's okay. You can relax." You don't have to do this. You don't have to act compulsively. The outward man is powerful. If you're not aware of its existence, and the purpose of the devil is to tell you that it's not here, he's not here. And if you are not aware of that fact, we do things we don't know, and that's the outward man doing those things. Have you ever say things that you didn't intend to say, but you found your mouth just say it on anyways? You knew that you shouldn't say those things, but some reason for some some unknown force caused you to behave and act in such a way that you have no control over. The outward man is is powerful in this first stage. The carnal force is the outward man. I will use that word as well. Influence the outward person. Your lust, what you desire, you're hungry, then you will feed what your soul or your flesh, your flesh. The carnal part, meaning the part that drives your desires, the part that drives your passion, is called the carnal force, and that that feeds into your outward man, that feeds into your flesh. The spiritual force shapes your inward person. The inward force or the spiritual force is very weak right now in many of us. It is so weak that it's so faint that we don't even recognize that's there. And this is a major problem for many believers today. We are not aware of the spiritual person inside of you, and the flesh is so compulsive. Whatever you do and however you act is catering to this outward flesh that causes your inward person to shrivel up and die. And we never get past the first stage. If we never pass the first stage. And go on to perfection or glory, then I would argue, is the Holy Spirit working in you at all? Because I believe there's nothing impossible with God. Do you believe that? If there's nothing impossible with God, then do you believe that even though your flesh is powerful, if the Holy Spirit presents in your life, then the Holy Spirit will have victory over your flesh? Do you believe that? The problem is. The question should be asked is whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you, is working and operating in you. That is the question. Because we can do many things outwardly, and it looks spiritual. You can do baptism. Is it easy? Take some work. But it's hard to be here, isn't it? It's hard to sit here. It's hard to be part of the body. 
It takes that fear of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit for you to say, instead of doing things catering to my flesh, I will get up early. I was really encouraged by Daniel. He wakes up, he gets here at 7 o'clock, although he doesn't have to be here. The flesh doesn't want to, but because there is something that is more important than the flesh, there's something that we desire to aspire to. We want to put the flesh under so that the spirit can begin to grow. The two forces are hostile to each other. They fight with each other, your carnal force and the spiritual force. And the believer, your life is the battleground. And we have to recognize that. If you, you think that you are not in the battleground, then you already lost. The smallest decisions that you make in your life affects who wins this battle or who loses this battle. Someone make you angry. If you don't stop and think, and you only respond because you're angry, then you have already lost because it will escalate. Angry turns to shouting match, turns to resentment, turns to hatred. If you're faithful in the little thing, then you will be faithful in the big thing. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But in this first stage, we are all carnally minded. Our mind is toward when is this going to end? When can I get back to doing what I want to do? That's our carnal mind. It leads us to death. The spiritually minded also leads to death. But it's a different kind of death. Not death of itself, but death of the enemy. And that is the flesh. You see, the flesh never wins. In the end, the flesh will die regardless. But the question is, will your spirit life live after the flesh is dead? Because the flesh will die eventually. To defeat the flesh, we must learn how to deal harshly with your flesh. You need to be able to say, no, you cannot do that. You cannot have those wants. You must obey what I'm telling you to do. If you can't do that to yourself, then you won't be able to do it for anyone else. The church at Corinth, there was a man. Paul wrote a letter, the second letter to the church, in the first letter to the Corinthians. And he said that, I've heard among you there's this man that sinned, a very grievous sin, that even the heathen, meaning the non-believer, they, they don't even engage in this kind of immorality. But I heard in your church there's this person. And this is what he says. I'm going to recommend this. Give him, give that man over to Satan. Now, listen, give that man over to Satan so that Satan would have his flesh so that his soul might be saved. I want you to think about this. This is the apostles talking. The purpose that Satan is in this world, the purpose that we go through pain and agony and death and all these things, including having Satan to buffet us, meaning to hurt us, is so that your inner man, your inner person might grow. That's the purpose. The only purpose why we endure this flesh so that it dies continually and fade out of existence so that your inner man can grow. Because we can pray as much as we want. We can read the Bible as much as we want. But if your flesh is so big and mighty and so powerful, 
Your inner man is dead. It cannot grow. And therefore, we must and we have to. It is a necessary evil, you can say, to give your body over to Satan, this flesh over to Satan, so that your soul might be saved. The path to glory demands death to our flesh. The sooner you die, the less surprised you will be when you actually die. So if you are unwilling to suffer in the flesh for the sake of Christ, then the crucified Messiah cannot be your God. We serve a God who in his physical form live a life that is spiritual, not carnal. Unless you are committed to let this flesh fade away and die. This church, your Christian faith, your life in Christ, has no meaning. It's better to give yourself over to Satan, and hopefully your soul might be saved. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, For unto us was the gospel preached, unto us as well as unto them, but the word, meaning those who are outside Christianity, but the word preached did not profit them. And them might be in the church, might be sitting here right now, it's up to you and I to distinguish for ourselves. Are we us? Are we them? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So you are hearing my words right now. But if you're sleeping or if you're playing games or if you're not paying attention, of course, listening to it, but you're not hearing it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. So if you listen to the gospel and believe the gospel, then... It has an effect on you. But if you listen and your mind is not here, it profits you nothing. The word preached did not profit you. Question to all of you here is, is the word being preached to you profit you? If it does not profit you, then your flesh is alive and well and your spirit is dead. We'll never pass the first stage. Now that you heard the gospel, do you believe? You heard the gospel here, do you believe? If you believe then you will enter into rest. If you don't believe or you don't hear it, then your flesh is alive and well and your spirit is dead. There are many reasons why it's hard for you to stay awake. The biggest issue is because I'm standing here. You have a comedian, you have someone who is more eloquent, you have someone who is more attractive looking, maybe it's easier. But because I'm standing here, your flesh, and I thank God that I'm standing here rather than someone else here because your, your flesh has to work harder to stay awake. And that is the dying of the flesh. You are in control of your flesh. Then you can tell it to pay attention. Then you can tell it to, person can hear the word of God and will not understand because your flesh will not allow you to understand because if you understand, then you will be saved. But if you don't pay attention, then you have no worries because you never understand. But if you pay attention, you might understand if you focus. Listening and making war against the flesh. Paul told the people in Galatians, and he said that the spirit and the flesh fight each other. They are never in agreement. Whatever the spirit wants to do, your flesh wants to do the opposite. Whatever your flesh wants to do, the spirit says no. That's not good for you. Now who are you going to listen to? You must choose. To choose the spirit means to reject your flesh. 
if you know that you need to pray, your flesh says, I don't want to. Who are you going to listen to? If you know that you need to read the Bible, what will your flesh tell you? No. I'd rather watch an anime. It surprised me to observe, to see how excited you are when you talk about some animated character in movies or in series of movies that you watch. And I hardly hear you talk about anything going on spiritually. It's not surprising that the flesh is powerful. And the world caters to your flesh. It knows what the flesh wants. But God never caters to your flesh. His will is to get rid of the flesh. His will is to subject your flesh so that the Holy Spirit can work. The war is between the flesh and the spirit. But Jesus Christ is and have already won the victory over your flesh. Jesus Christ had done the work. The question now is, do you believe? When I say this, some of you says, but my flesh is so powerful. I want to read the Bible, but I fall asleep. I want to pray, but I can never find the time. But then you can stay awake for hours talking nonsense with your roommate. The flesh is powerful. We need to recognize that. And Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. Jesus Christ does it. You don't have to do it. You need to ask the question, do you believe this? And I was so surprised to see these kids are able to recite the entirety of a Disney movie by memory. And here I am, Saturday. Anyone want to recite the scripture next week? It's like this. It's silent. It's silent. Where's your heart? What is important to you? We get those things and we get it into our heart. And yet, the scripture, the things that the flesh wants is against God. The things that God wants is against the flesh. You believe that God has won the victory and that if you believe in him, he will give you the power to overcome your flesh. Because if you cannot pass this first stage, this is the, the most difficult stage. The other ones are easier than this one. And that is why you see there probably are 90% of what I consider nominal Christians, meaning Christian only by name, and because they have not gotten past this first stage. And it's the most difficult part because the flesh is so powerful at this stage and the spirit is so weak at this stage that it's difficult for you to decide what you should do on a Sunday morning. Should I go or should I do something else? If there is anything else, would it take priority over God? Should I memorize some Disney songs rather than the Psalms? The flesh is powerful at this stage, but if you believe in God, if you believe in his word, if his word begins to change you and you take this word as part of your heart, as part of your being, then your flesh can begin to fade away. Second step, 
once you listen and believe in God's word, we come to the next stage, and that is trusting, eyes on God. Second Chronicles 20.12, eyes on God, trust. King Jehoshaphat, this is his prayer when he was faced with three armies coming against Israel. And he stood there in the wilderness of Tekoa, and this is what he said. We have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Now that you decide to make your flesh weaker, I hope this is the journey you want to make. If not, don't come back next week. You're baptized, you're good to go. Now, but if you decide to put down this flesh and begin to cultivate your spiritual self, then this is the next stage. It is a bit easier than the first stage once you get past it. The Spirit begins to renew your inward being. But you must learn to trust God. What does it mean to learn to trust God? Trusting is the habit of a soul. You see, trusting is not about what the facts are, whether or not you see something. That's not trust. Trust is whether you believe the person is telling the truth or not. That's trusting. It's not that I trust you after you show me the evidence. That's not trust. Believing is when you cannot see, but you choose to trust. Trusting is just that. Trusting is there are these three armies. They are more numerous than our armies. I have no idea what to do. But I'll keep my eye on you. That's what King Jehoshaphat said. That's what trusting means. Trusting is I have no money in my bank. When I have $10 in my bank, and the check is nowhere to be found. But I'm not worried. I know God provides. Trusting is when you can't see what's going on. You don't know what's going on. And everything that you see, everything in your view is opposite than what you think it should be. Jehoshaphat standing there, he saw three armies coming against him. Three armies. And he said two things here. Number one, he said, we have no might. Meaning, we're so weak compared to them. And the second thing he said is, neither we know what to do. We have no plans. But he said this, our eyes are upon you. Trusting means learn to look upon God, not on what he can do. Trusting means you trust God, trust his word, trust what he has promised, not what he can do or what he has done for you. That's what trust is. Trust is when your spouse, all the evidence is against him, you continue to trust because he loves you. That's it. Jehoshaphat's prayer to God was, all eyes on thee. When you put your eyes on God instead of what's going on around you, then you have hope because you know that he loves you. You know he never fails you. You know that anything, whether good or bad happens, you know that he will take care of you. That's what trusting is, even though all the evidences might point to the contrary. When the people ran out to the Red Sea and the enemy was behind them, what did they see? They see death. That's all they saw. But the ones who trust in God will be delivered. God is spirit, so you cannot see God with your eyes. So you need to learn to see God with your inner being. And if your inner being is non-existent, if your flesh is so big, then your eyes can never see God. Your eyes can only see the problems at hand. So if your flesh fade away and your inner man begin to grow, then you develop the spiritual eyes so that you can begin to see God 
because you can't see God with your physical eye. He is invisible to our physical eyes. Paul says this: We look at things not seen, rather than things that are seen, because things that are not seen are eternal, and things that are seen are temporal. Number three, wait. In our instant messaging responses, we shorten everything from a phrase to a acronym. We want everything to be instant. We want everything to be short and concise. You send a message, and if someone does not respond right away, they must be dead or they got into a car accident or something. Why is not respond yet?、Um, we've lost the art of waiting. We don't know how to wait anymore. We don't know how to take time and reflect on what's matter. We only respond, and then when the response doesn't work, we respond to fix the response, and that doesn't work, we respond immediately to fix that response that didn't work to the response that we sent out before. Isaiah forty thirty one. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength; they shall mount up with wings as eagles; they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Without strength, you will die. We all die without strength. And if you don't learn how to wait on the Lord, you are without strength, and therefore your spirit will die. The spirit needs time to grow. You teach the kids, the little kids. If you have no patience, you would kill them already. But because you know that they are impetuous, you know that they are impulsive, you know that they are juvenile, that you know that they are only children. So you have patience with them. You wait. When they throw a tantrum, you stand there and you wait for them to stop. You see, waiting. Is part of a matured person's character. When you are mature, you wait. When you are mature in your thought, in your thinking, in your life, you are willing to wait, and it's okay not to pull out your phone and play a game while you wait. It's okay to just be silent and be introspective and think and reflective. It's okay. It's necessary for you to wait because if you don't and you can't develop an attitude of waiting and be bored, boredom has become a lost art. Because through boredom, we learn many new things, not existing things that we already know. So through boredom, your mind starts to wonder and try to discover new things. But if you never have the time, you never given your mind the time to explore something new, and you only gravitate to things that you already knew, then you will never learn anything. You're only regurgitating things that you have already. You keep playing the same game over and over again, and you never come to a point where you step back and you say, "Hey, look, all these games are the same. They do exactly the same thing. You collect resources, you build these things, you build that thing, you wait, and then the next game is the same thing." It's just different graphics, different designer, different time scale, done and over with. It's been in the past. Nothing new. Waiting is an art that we need to learn, and waiting is a character trait of a matured individual. The mature person will first evaluate whether or not the thing is worth doing. A child will look at the thing and what, and do it. No thinking is required, but someone who is matured, they look at something and they say, "Hmm, let me think about that." That's the act of waiting. And while you're waiting, you're thinking, you're strategizing. When you see a predator, you fight or you 
you fly, you run. But someone who's smart stops, think, look at the landscape and figure out, I can outrun that person. I'll be okay. So you're not thinking. A prudent man deals with knowledge. Knowledge comes when you stop and you think, waiting. But if you stop and you don't think, and if you stop and you're only busy with yourself, with all kinds of activities, then it's still a waste of time. We need to have time to think. We need to have time to reflect. We need to have time to just be bored. What do you do when you wait on the Lord? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I'll give you a couple of examples. When Lazarus was sick, did Jesus come right away? Did God say, you know what? Abraham and Sarah is getting old. I need to get hurry because otherwise they can't have children anymore. The way that God works is through patience. He waits to make sure that Sarah's womb is nice and dead before he operates. That's scripture. That is Romans 4.19. He waits until Lazarus is nice and dead in the grave before he came and called him out. God loves to wait because in waiting, he can observe and see or how mature we are. Because kids, when you're immature, you hate to wait. You want to do things. But if you don't think and you act, you get into trouble. The way upon the Lord means when the storms and tempests and the wars comes, and then you sit back and you sing, even so, it is well with my soul. To wait upon the Lord means to pray. Jesus reminds his disciples, if you don't want to faint, then pray always. When you wait on the Lord, it means that is the time for us to pray. I'm going to go through the last three stages quickly, because not because they're not important, but because we need to get to the first three stages of our lives before we get to the next three stages. There's one stage that you and, you and I will never get to in this life, and that's glory. Okay, so that's the last stage. Suffer, the test of faith. Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now do you see why this verse is so foreign to us? Because we haven't got through the first three stages yet. How can you even talk about suffer for Christ? It makes no sense for us to suffer because we can't even deny our own flesh. How can we say we're going to suffer for someone else? This verse only is applicable. This life, this stage is only applicable when you have gotten yourself out of the green pasture and into the valley of the shadow of death. But unless we get into the valley, we won't know what suffering means. When you first buy the house, all the money goes into paying for the interest. And then at the middle point is where the interest and the principal, meaning the money that you pay for the house, equals out. And then from the middle toward the end of your mortgage is when you pay more in principal and less in interest. This is the stage where that division happens. And when you start paying more in dividends to your spiritual life than you are to your flesh. But we need to get past the first 15 years. Most of us refinance. So it shifts over. We never get to the middle stage. We're always paying interest to the flesh. 
The third stage, suffering, is the stage where things begin to change. You begin to move into the powerful ministry and the calling that God has for you. If we have not get past the first three stages, we never get to this stage. And you won't understand what's happening here. Suffering is the part that leads us on to the next three stages of our lives. The outward man at this stage is weak. The inward man is as weak as the outward man, but there's hope because now the battlefield is even. Now there's chance that your spiritual self will progress, but there's also a chance that your flesh will revert and then you refinance and then you pay more dividend on your interest. The Apostle Paul gives us a very clear picture, and he said this, at this stage, the world to me is crucified and I am to the world. So when we get to this stage, the world looks a lot more faint. The world is becoming less and less visible. So it's easier for you to focus on the spiritual. Pastor Paul, go and do this and do that. I would tell you, if it has to do with the flesh, it's easier for me to say, I don't want to. At this stage, it's easier to say no to the flesh. That's what I'm saying. Work your way down into the valley. And once you get down into the valley, things will get more difficult, but the flesh is weaker and you can't control it. You can say no easier to the flesh. Next stage, love. Love laying down your life. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. After you've gone through and know that suffering is part of growth, suffering will lead ultimately to laying down your life. If we never learn to suffer, then we'll never learn to love anyone. For if you love them which love you, what thing do you have? Sinners also love those that love them. Your love before the, the suffering stage is a love based on condition. Does she love me? If she does, then I'll love her. If she doesn't love me, I won't love her. What kind of love is that? It ends when the person's gone or when the person loves someone else. That's not the love of Jesus Christ. That's not the love of God. The love of God is this, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's nothing that we can do for Christ because he died. This is the love of God. That he so loved us that he sent his son to die for us. That's the love. The love that says it's not contingent on whether you love me back. That is real love. Real love is not because this person loved me and therefore I love that person back. That's not real love. Real love is not because I give birth to this kid and therefore I have to love this kid. That's not real love. It's not out of obligation. But it is a self-willing, freely giving. And we don't have that. Only God has. And he gave himself for us. That's true love. Love is true when it finds no reason to love other than the intrinsic love that it must give. That's true love. It is the sincerest form of humility when you love someone who hates you. Jesus says, love your enemy. We'll never know and we'll never come to identify this until we pass the suffering stage. You see, all these things make no sense. To anyone who never gone down the valley, you don't know how to love your enemy. You don't know how to love those that would crucify you, that would slander you, that would say bad things to you. You never know. But that's the love that God requires because that's the only love that can be called love. Death. Second Corinthians 1.9 But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God which raises the dead. This is the last stage on this side of our mortality. 
love ultimately concludes in its greatest testimony of love, and that is when love dies. You can say as much as we want, but the conclusion of love is the death of the person itself. And if the person dies in love, then that death is the perfect death. But if before you die you curse everybody and then you die, all is a wash. But in death, Jesus Christ on the cross, he looked at the people and he said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." That's real love. That is the love that ends in death, and then after death is resurrection, being found in a fashion. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Philippians chapter two, verse eight. This is how a person should be before God. Listen to this verse. And being found in a fashion as a man, this is what God intends for a person to be. The fashion of a man is this image, and this is the image of the fashion that God has intended. Humility. He humbled himself, became obedient. Humility. Obedient unto death. That is the fashion that we should fashion our lives accordingly. Death on the cross. Jesus Christ was the seal of God's standard on how one ought to live his life. At this stage, we end our journey. This is where everything concludes when we end. Now, I hope that each one of us, and I hope that my life, when I breathe my last breath, I can say, and the evidences of the people around me can say, he loved. That's it. And then we pass on into glory because glory is behind the cross. For all light affliction. Notice how he said light affliction. Paul was beaten, shipwrecked, bitten by snake, slandered. They were going to murder him. He put on trial. He was beaten by mobs. He was beaten again, and then. He doesn't know what happens to him in Rome when he goes to meet Caesar, Nero. And then he says, "For our light affliction." And then he compares. He uses the word "light" in terms of weight. And then this is what he says: "For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's temporal, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of." Glory. There's something that's much more precious than all the sufferings and the afflictions that you are going through right now. Can you see it? Do you believe it? The most challenging stage is not death. It's not love. It's not suffering. It is weight. It is trust, and it is believing in the gospel. That's the hardest stages. Where do we begin? Do you believe in the word that was preached? Will you take a step and say, "I take this word, I read it, I memorize it, I believe it, I trust, and I wait on the Lord." Those are the steps that we must take. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Be glorified in everything that we do in this life. In Your name, be exalted in the smallest of things that we do, whether it is. Waiting on you, whether it's trusting in you, or whether it's suffering because of Christ's sake, shape our inward person to become the measure and the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in all things you might be glorified 
to our lives. I pray that each person here, whether we are old or whether we are young, let us go through these stages of development of our spiritual being so that we can come to the stage where we can see the, the ministry open up for us, the glorification of the Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives, in what we say, in our proclivities, in the choices that we make, in what we do in our daily lives, and the things that we say may be glorifying to you. And I pray for the maturity of every person here so that we traverse through this life knowing that you will keep us in perfect peace. You will keep us in fervency for your namesake. And that in the end, we will arrive at that perfect place. And that is the death and the finality of this flesh. And we thank you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.